And let's pray again and then we'll, we'll get into our passage that John's just read to us this morning. I mean, God, we thank you for your word that uh, you have um, given to us, that you have captured in history, that's been written down, that our souls and our hearts and our minds might be informed with who you are, what you're like, and then out of that we would live our lives accordingly uh, in obedience and in love and gratitude to you. We pray as we look into this passage this morning, as John said, he's straight at it. It's pretty, pretty at us, and we pray that our hearts will be challenged but warmed with affection for you as we, as we get through this passage this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got a question. I'm always kind of nervous when I ask questions because I actually don't know how you're going to answer it and it could just crash and burn, uh, but it could be wildly successful and illustrate the point that I needed to illustrate. But here's the question uh, that, that I'd like you to answer. Just kind of put your hands up and don't lie. Don't try and overstate your intelligence. That's not going to be helpful to me, okay? Don't do that. Uh, if you're at home, just kind of have a conversation amongst yourselves or maybe in the chat, Sandy will say, yeah, two people. Who can tell me... The first name of their great-grandfather. Not your grandfather, your great-grandfather. Right now, his name. Who's got it? Five. Yeah, okay. I believe you, brother. Thomas. Five, five, six maybe of us uh, here actually know the name of our great-grandfather. That's interesting. You know, most, most of our grandfathers that are here probably lived... Roughly around maybe the turn of the century, 19th century, into the 1900s, maybe up to the 1960s. So not that long ago, really. And some of you would have some of their features, I imagine. If you could find an old photo of them, you you might find that you look a little bit like them. Some of you probably have some of their characteristics and you've never even met them. And yet, unless you're big into Ancestry.com, they're largely forgotten. They're just faded. Maybe a faded photo on a wall somewhere. Our lives are fleeting, and it won't be too long before we're forgotten, before our names are unknown. I was chatting with a friend of mine, our daughters had played netball together, and chatting away with him, and his father, about a month ago, his father had just passed away, and and he made this comment as we were talking about his dad and all this sort of stuff, and he said, you know, the saddest thing, the thing that makes me the saddest about the passing of my father is that it won't be long until he is forgotten. His exact words, this great man, this force of nature, will be like he never lived. He'll be forgotten. And that's a pretty sobering thought when we think about it, that our lives are so so transient, that our lives are so fleeting, that our lives are so forgettable. Who's ever logged on to their social media accounts, maybe Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat? John, I know you're all over Snapchat. Um, and, and then you find that there's a picture there of a night out, or maybe a birthday party, or I don't know, a work function, some kind of thing, and there's photos of everybody having a great time, but not you. You're at home watching reruns of Seinfeld. And you get this feeling of being left out, of, of being forgotten. What about when you post something on your social media things, Facebook or whatever, whatever lane you roll in? A whole 13 seconds goes by and not one little like, not one of those little, whatever it is, those little things, hearts that, that pop up on Instagram. And then, and then 27 seconds later, nothing, still nothing. So you tag in a few more friends, a couple more hashtags, trying to generate a little bit of trending, still nothing. And it's been a whole minute. You start to wonder if you even really exist. To be forgotten is probably the worst thing imaginable, really. 
to be as though to be thought of like you never exist, like there's no thought of you, like you never actually existed. It's what made my friend so sad. He knew it wouldn't be long until his dad would just be a faded photo on a wall. Worse than that is to actually live as though you don't exist, to be forgotten about in this life, to feel as though you are not relevant or significant or even basically noticed, even, even basically thought of, even some criticism, even to be told you're a pain in the neck would be better than just being forgotten. It's certainly painful when we have times when we feel like we're left out. Left out of the picture, forgotten by friends and acquaintances. And it's certainly even more painful when we feel like we've been left out by family and people that we love. When we feel like they have forgotten us and they haven't included us into their stories and into their lives. But in our passage today, James is saying there is something far more worse than either of these two. In fact, he calls it evil. And that is to live your life as though God does not exist. To forget who God is and what he has done for you. It's not just unfortunate. It's not just inconsiderate. It's evil. It's a sin. It's, It's failing to do what is right, James says. And we've been making our way through this little letter of James. James writes his letter to Christians, those that he's been in pastoral oversight, that they would have, he's got one aim in his writing, they would have a faith that works. Faith that's actually saved them into an internal relationship with God. And the key diagnostic tool uh, that gives tangible evidence to the fact that our faith is saving is works is that you are living a radically transformed life where, where you live your life out toward others. The same grace that you've experienced from God in Jesus is, is the way you live towards other people. Evidenced by your love for God and what he has done, expressed in your love of your brothers and sisters, expressed in your love and your care and your concern for your neighbour without any prejudice. Faith expressed in acts of justice and mercy. Uh, Visiting orphans and widows is what James has said there, which is kind of shorthand for going and helping those who can't help themselves. But to do it with tangible, practical um, stuff, not just pious words. Our faith needs to be exercised through works of repentance and works of reprioritized loves. James tells us that that our faith needs to be fueled with wisdom, but not the wisdom that positions us as rivals, as competitors for God, but as dependence on God, trusting Him. Heavenly wisdom, not worldly wisdom, was the contrast. Genuine faith saves you. Genuine faith transforms you, makes you dependent on God because you know God loves to give He's a generous God. He loves to give gifts. He loves to give more grace to supply us with what we need. James has written a very realistic health check of the Christian faith. And now James is addressing one of the most natural and and, and necessary activities of our life. We do it so practically, so ordinary, that we don't even notice we're doing it sometimes. It's kind of like when you ask a fish to describe water to you and the fish looks at you and goes, water, what's, what's water? And yet at the same time, it requires us to give it intentionality. It requires us to give it due consideration. James is now looking at 
our life plans, how we structure up our lives, our short-term goals, our long-term ambitions, how we plan for our comfort and our wealth, how we approach what we plan to do with our lives. That's what he's digging into now. This is about as normal activity as you can get. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's planning at some level, in varying degrees. All people make plans. All people set goals. You know, and, 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 and yet as James begins this passage, he starts with a strong rebuke against this normal, this natural activity. And a, and a bit of a change of, of relational tone in his language. Come now, he says. It's blunt. It's abrupt. It's a caution. It's like saying, listen up, you. Come now. And James has changed from addressing his audience as brothers and sisters. You know, my beloved brothers and sisters. He now has got this impersonal you in there. Come now, you. You who say this and that. And one commentator suggests that James feels that their actions make them unworthy of... Of, of being called brothers and sisters in Christ. And other commentators think that James is addressing, you know, travelling merchants and using them as an object lesson for Christians. Either way, James wants to address a way of making plans that is actually evil. To avoid this, James gives us two things that we need to get right, two things uh, that we need to have right in our planning. James is kind of contrasting these, these two ways of Organising and planning your life in this passage. Now, obviously, James cannot be just flat out condemning planning in general. That would put him outside of the scope of biblical advice, of sound biblical advice, which James has been drawing on all throughout his letter. Like he's been drawing on Proverbs, and in Proverbs we find uh, to not to not to to not plan is foolishness. Like it's the fool who doesn't make plans. We read that in Proverbs 13 and uh, 21 and 24 and so on. It's all through there. And Jesus himself, who, who James keeps going back to Jesus teaching and, and reframing it, Jesus himself in Luke 14 said, no one builds a tower or goes to war without making plans. And it was Joseph uh, planning that saved Egypt and Israel. God himself makes plans. And we sang about it this morning. He's making plans. And those plans are most evident in the sending of Jesus into the world at just the right time. The kind of planning that James calls evil is living or planning, working or operating without continual and relentless reference to God, intellectually or emotionally. It is to practically forget God, to functionally leave God out of your plans. Whether that is to get up in the morning and make your breakfast, or whether it's to finish a marine biology degree at university, buy a house, get married, cut your toes, whatever. Tim Keller says this about this. He says, The sin that James is now talking about is to fail in any regard to connect what you're doing, what you're thinking, and what you're feeling right now, or as you plan to do life, to fail to connect it vitally with who God is and what he's done for you. It's to forget God in that. And the reason that he concludes that, the reason that we conclude that, commentators conclude that, is that James is saying that there is a 
planning that forgets God is because he, he outlines it down in verse 16 by the use of this word, you boast in your arrogance, your own control of circumstances and environments. These plans that you make have an arrogant view of the future, have an arrogant view of self. They forget who God is and what he has done. They forget his sovereignty. They, they pay no regard to his will that should be expressed through our faith in works. Arrogance is an attitude uh, of the heart that, that forgets God. It's an, it's an attitude of the heart that gets hold of our calendars and our, our personal forecasters and it, and it practically operates like God is, is not around. When it comes to making our plans, we become functional atheists. Our planning revolves solely around us, our self-importance, our ambitions, our agendas. Uppermost in our thinking is self. And it can be really subtle that we do this sort of stuff, almost like we're trying to trick ourselves into it. And it can be overt, like we literally don't care. We conveniently forget God or act like he may not be interested in how we live, which is not like the insensitive of being left out of a social gathering, James is saying that, that's sinful. We either forget God out of convenience, we don't want to include him in our planning just in case we have to forego something or change something. God's plans might not include what we want to have included. Like don't spend all your money on yourself, be generous. Or we don't feel God is relevant to planning. We're self-sufficient and God can fit in with my planet. He can just deal with it. Or we might, we might be silly enough to say something like, wait till he sees what I'm doing for him. When he gets on board with my you know, greatness, isn't that going to be wonderful? Both of these demonstrate a lack of trust and a lack of love in God for God. It reveals that we are more attached to our passions and desires being met via the world's processes of, of, of self first, even if that comes at the expense of others. James describes this forgetful approach to planning as, as, as the arrogant boast of the heart. And it's not that you have the words of that you know, Frank Sinatra song, you know, I did it my way, written on a t-shirt or anything like that. No, a boast is what, what you strengthen your heart with. What you use to motivate your actions, your plans. Boasts back in the day when this was written early in, in ancient times, boasts were used by leaders of armies to motivate their troops into battle. Boasts would describe the spoils of and, and, and the victory you know, of the battle at hand to get their troops to lay down their lives, to get their troops to, to submit to their plans. You know, tonight we'll bust through the walls and we'll eat all their food and we'll marry all their women and whatever. I've been watching a bit of Vikings, so there's all kinds of boasts. Ones that I probably can't repeat in church in there, but to boast in our own plans without any reference to God, intellectually, emotionally, to make plans without any inclusion into our thinking of God is to live spiritually as though God does not exist. That's what James is calling out here. That's what James is calling a sin. And he's not alone. Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote down the Lord's words about this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts 
boast about this, that they have, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these, declares the Lord. To help us reprioritize our planning, James gives us two reminders of, of who we are and who God is. Firstly, James tells us what we actually know, but what we choose to ignore, and that is this, that we don't actually know. We don't know. We can't know with 100% certainty what tomorrow will bring. Unlike God, we are not um, omniscient. You know, we're not all-knowing. We're not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. And yet, despite uh, our own knowledge of our limitations, we tend to make plans as though the future is under our control. Like we do know 100% what tomorrow is going to bring. Christians live in an interesting outlook on the world, you know. We know with 100% certainty, no doubt at all, where we will be in a million years' time. But we do not know with 100% certainty where we will be tomorrow what will happen tomorrow. And yet we don't merely make plans. We assume that due to our planning, uh, due to our diligence, that the future, that tomorrow is a lock on how we think it's going to go. And our boast is in our thoroughness, our research, our strategies. It's an approach of the heart that is literally detached from reality because it says you can control the future. What you're doing is you're putting yourself in the place of God. James says, don't be so overconfident, so arrogant. It will just make you deeply anxious, deeply disappointed when the universe flexes back against your plans. Don't we all get a little bent out of shape when what we plan falls into a hole and we realise that we realise the control that we thought we had can just be taken from us, can just be wiped out? I was chatting with my dad last week and he shared a random story uh, that's what he's good at, these kind of little random stories that have absolutely no connection to whatever we were talking to. I think they just drop into his head and out they come. Uh, from, a, from up his way, there was a local, like he's in like an entrepreneurial type, who had brought up, he's just brought up half a dozen properties around the place, spent about $8 million over the past six months because he saw that coastal land was becoming sought-after commodity. And he thought that he would buy it all up, secure his future, control his future. And then last weekend, he went out for his usual surf on his usual beach and drowned. A tragic moment where he lost control of the universe. And his plans are now gone, and they will become someone else's dreams. What is your life, says James? Something that you have ultimate control over? No. No, says James. Rather, our lives are like mist. They're limited and transient, like mist that appears for the briefest of moments, and then it's gone. It's kind of like when you, when you crawl out of your swag on a cold winter's morning camp on the river there, you crawl out and that first breath that comes out, and you see it form up in front of you, and then before you can kind of look at it, it's just gone. Mist. We're like that. We're like mist. We are limited. We are limited in our control 
over our environments and our plans. Mist is very transient. It's very forgettable substance. And James says, that's pretty much what our lives are like if our plans are limited to, the, to this world. When our plans forget God, they are plans of mist made by people of mist. And you say, hang on, I've been listening to you for the last eight years, Mason. We're a little bit more important than mist. What happened to all this being made in the image of God thing? We're, we're actually quite important. Well, James is not actually making a value statement here. He's making an impact statement, a time opportunity statement. You are like mist, here for a short time, a transient time. Will you use that time to invest in things that fade or invest in, into things that are eternal? Does the way you plan reveal an approach uh, of the heart that is mindful of God, has been transformed to think spiritually, eternally, not merely just materially and selfishly? That's what James is driving at here. The capacity of plans that are made that leave God out are like mist. They die with the person are soon forgotten themselves. That's what made my mate so sad about his dad. Mist. Instead, James says, and here's the contrast of how we should make plans. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. Now, if the Lord wills is not some kind of magical expression, some, some pious addendum that you throw over your plans, like a spiritual formula that means that God now has to pay attention uh, and consideration to your plans because you've invoked this special formula, this little creedal thing, you know. No, that's not it at all. Nor, nor is, you know, if, if God wills, nor is it a statement of resigned fatalism that excuses you from making meaningful plans and taking responsibility for your actions. If the Lord wills is not a formula and it's not fatalism, it's a condition of the heart that recognizes every good gift comes from above. Everything we have, every opportunity before us, the very breath that we have only exists because God allows it to. The one who is not like mist but rather plans the course of creation and all that happens. It's an attitude of the heart that isn't forgetful of our dependency on God. What is this attitude? What does it look like? What does it look like practically? Do you plan to pray? Do you plan to read your Bible? Do you plan to meditate on what God has given you that you might know who he is, like Jeremiah said? To know, to understand God. And then in understanding God, then the natural rhythms of our lives begin to be inclusive of Him in our plans. Do you plan to understand God so that your plans are in the knowledge of His plans? What is important here is not the verbalization, but that if the Lord wills becomes a fixed principle an exercised principle in our hearts, in our minds, of continuous seeking to honour God, to know God, to bring Him into our planning. Then you sing, God above it all, maker of my soul. Your name be praised forever. You, you be remembered in what I do. As a God who plans to do stuff. And the question is, 
you know, we sing that song, but are we functionally joining in with that in our hearts and our minds? James is saying here, your plans matter, your choices matter. They matter because they reveal if you trust God as being good. They, they, they show not merely if you've recognized that you don't control things, but that you have surrendered that control of things to God, to his wisdom, to his goodness. You don't fear making plans, you know, and including God in them because you know he's good. You know, whatever he is on about is going to be for your good, for your well-being. To not do this is to not be in touch with reality. To not understand that any success and any failure is not due to your ability to control but to your humility to say not my will be done but the Father's will be done. Because not only does the Father know all things but he is working all things for good who, who love him. That's what Paul's on about at the end of Romans there. Genuine faith, faith that works. Faith uh, works, is, works its way into how we make our plans because it trusts in the goodness of God. Because it remembers that he is for us. He is, he is for our growth in Christ. That our boast would be in experiencing his sustaining grace. His sustaining grace and not our independent illusion control. Yes, yes, make plans. But plans that are going to have significance in a million years time. Make plans that are not tied to mist. That will build the kingdom of God. That will build the people of God. Not merely the kingdom of me. It's not just the the contingency of our plans, but it's the, the substance of our plans that show if we have a faith that works. To show that if we've remembered God or forgotten God. Who is it? that has lived life without a single independent boast or overconfident arrogance? Who is it that has submitted every step, every word, every deed that it would matter in a million years' time? Who is it that preeminently said, if the Lord wills? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus. Who is it who is the supreme example of someone who surrendered control of their life to the will of the Father? Jesus. Who is the one when taunted and mocked and challenged to come down off the cross and take control of his life, submitted to the will of the Father? Jesus. Jesus came and submitted to the, the, the plans of his life to God so that you and I could know that, that everything, even death, when submitted to God, leads to eternal life with God. Jesus became forgettable like mist so that you could become more like him, like God, eternal in nature. So that you would be remembered eternally. You are not forgotten. 
No matter what our social media might say. Jesus was raised back to life so that you could know that all plans submitted to God lead to eternal life. That is the reality that should cause us to remember the goodness of God. That is the reality that should shape your planning. That is the love of God that should shape your boast. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you again uh, for this little book of James. There's just so much in it. It's like trying to pour the ocean into a thimble, I think, sometimes. Lord, we just want to bring our hearts and our lives before you now. We know that there are times, so many, so subtle and so overt, where we, we just do not include you into the rhythm of our lives, into the planning of our lives. We want to just stop now, pause and say, we're sorry. We know James has told us that there is more grace. There's not just initial grace, but there's ongoing grace. There's grace for those who, who, who bring their lives back to the Father to say, yep, I need to include, I need to remember. I need to call you into the rhythm of my life and stop living without you there we are sorry for when we try and take control when we try and put ourselves in your position in our lives but we are grateful that you stoop down and pick us up and say yeah okay let's keep rolling more grace to those who would stop and remember, who would lay down their arrogance, humble their hearts, and bring God into their planning. We thank you. Amen.